Oh, well, good morning, City Light. Let me be the fifth person person from stage this morning to tell you good morning. <laughs> if you haven't yet, oh, by the way, my name is Joe, and I am one of the pastors here. If you haven't yet, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And today we're going to continue uh, looking in the life of David. However, today, um, the primary in the text is the primary character in the text is not going to be David, but it's going to be God. And God is going to reveal to David and to us something great about his character. So this morning, if you've ever walked in, if, if you've ever asked yourself this question, uh, today is for you. And if you've asked this, is God a taker? Is he a distant creator or, or religious figure watching and asking us to do more for him? Is he only pleased if I'm worrying, if I have done enough to make him happy? Or is he something much different than that? Is he a God who actually gives generously to his people? Well, the story this morning is going to answer that question. It's going to point us to the very character of God. In this text, David is going to come to God with good intentions. He wants to do a good thing for God, but God is going to slow him down. He's going to say, hold on a second, David. This thing is not about you doing something good for me, but about me doing something great and shocking for you. And here's why this matters for us today. I've learned it's very possible to become weary and tired and spiritually exhausted because we're trying to do things, trying our very best to please God. Some of you are sitting in, sitting here today and you're insecure because you're not sure if you've done enough or if you're doing enough for God. And you wonder, do I serve enough? Do I give enough? Is God happy with me? And the good news today, church, is that the gospel is going to silence all of those fears. Beard hairs sometimes get in there. It's a little... Yeah. But the gospel is going to silence any of those fears that we have. So this morning, we're going to see this incredible interaction between David and God. And we're going to see uh, as David hears this, hears this promise, his posture is going to change. He's going to go from, God, let me do something great from you to, oh my goodness, God, who am I that you would do such a great thing for me and for your people? And church, my hope for us is that is what would happen in our hearts. If after we see the truth of the gospel and understand ourselves and understand our God rightly, that our posture would change from exhaustion and God, what can I do to you to thank you, God, for doing so much for me? And again, before we jump in, I want you to know that this word, this word is for us this morning, because today this is still our temptation. Today, you might be coming in this morning a little tired, a little weary, and not because you need a cup of coffee or an afternoon nap because you stayed up and watched a boxing match last night, but because you're spiritually exhausted. And you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you can do no more to try to please God. But what we're going to see from the text today is that it doesn't give you one more thing to do, but it points you to believe in the one who will do it all for you. 
It produces gratitude and freedom and worship. And my hope is that is what it produces in our hearts as well. So let's go ahead and jump in. My first observation from the text this morning is this. David's offer a house fit for a God. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Now when the king had lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So let's go ahead and get caught up on on what is going on in Israel right now. David, at this point, has been crowned the king of all of Israel. And so the whole nation is unified under this one king. Saul's family and his followers and the people that are loyal to him are out of the picture. And all of Israel is united under David. There is one kingdom. There is one king. And he's established his palace, the seat of his kingdom in the city Jerusalem. And not only that, but he has brought the ark of God into that same city of Jerusalem. Now, if we remember in the Old Testament, the ark of God is where the presence of God dwelt. Hundreds of years before this, Moses and the Israelites uh, made a big tent called a tabernacle and this ark for God's presence to dwell in. And so David has gone and he has gotten that ark and he has brought it into the city and he has established it in the city of Jerusalem. And in that, he has said, this kingdom, our kingdom, Israel, we are gonna be dependent on God. His palace and the tabernacle are in the same city. And so he's establishing that. Now let's zoom in uh, to verse one again and, and, and notice what it says. It says, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So this is an important uh, statement that we need to hear from God, that the Lord has given David rest from his enemies. You see, Israel has been at constant war for almost 400 years at this point. They have been at war with their enemies, the people around them, but now they have been given rest from their enemies for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, and they are unified under a king who is submitting himself to God. This is the pinnacle of Israel up to this point. It has never been better than it is now, and and this is the very top of what they have been. They uh, have seen God be faithful to his promise to Abraham to build a nation. They have seen God be faithful to Moses to bring his people into the promised land and to dwell with them, and now God has established a kingdom under one king who is submitting to God. Israel has finally arrived. This is the, the ultimate underdog story. Israel, just a few hundred years before this, were slaves under a kingdom of Egypt, one of the largest, most powerful kingdoms in the world. And now a few hundred years later, they are one of the most powerful nations in all the world. And God is with them and has supplied a king that he has promised to be with. This is like mountaintop for Israel. And so David 
He says to God, you know what? We're established. Now I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house so that people might come to a place and worship you. I live in this huge house of cedar. You're in this tent that's hundreds of years old. Let's fix, let's fix this. And I want you to see this is not a bad thing. In fact, this is a good and God honoring thing that David wants to do for God. But we have to pause. And we have to listen to God's voice. And so let's see what God's response is. Look with me at verses four to seven. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now we have a new person in the story here, Nathan. Nathan is the prophet. If you remember, Samuel has passed away and now Nathan is the prophet of Israel. Basically, Nathan is the pastor of Israel, if we can bring it into kind of our, our, our context here. And, a, and so David and Nathan are hanging out on the back porch and, and David says, hey, I wanna build God a house. And Nathan's like, yeah, absolutely, man. Go do it. The Lord is with you. However, the Lord comes to Nathan in a dream that night and he says, hey, Nathan, go and stop David and tell him these things. Now, if this is not evidence that the Bible is true and that uh, the word of God is true, how many pastors do you know that turn down fully funded building projects? I haven't met one. This is just shows us how true the Bible is. And so God, God tells David, no, he says, you're not gonna build me a house. He stops David in his tracks, and I love this. He, he Look at the language he uses right off the bat. Would you build me a house? David, would you build me a house? Sometimes my kids like to build forts in the living room out of blankets and chairs and pillows and stuff like that. And they'll say, Daddy, you need a room in the fort too. And something tells me as I'm looking at that, I don't really need a three foot wide, but two foot high room to hang it out in the rest of the day. I think I'm okay with the rest of the house. God tells David that he needs David to build him a house about as much as I need that room in my kid's fort. David is this, God is this. But more importantly, God tells David, you know what, David? Our relationship is not gonna be based on you do something for me and then I do something for you. That's not how it's going to be. God stops David from building him a temple, not because it's a bad idea, but he calls a timeout in the story to remind David that he is not some insecure God that needs his people to provide for him. He is an all-powerful God who chooses on his own to live amongst his people, to bless his people, to give to his people, and not to take from them. God reminds David of his character. And City Light, this is huge in understanding the gospel. If we don't get this, we're likely to live lives of legalism and dutifulness, but miss out on the joy and the freedom that the gospel brings. If we think that we have something to offer God, we're missing the very first piece of understanding the gospel rightly. 
God provides so we don't have to. He fights for us so we can rest in him. We bring him nothing which is absolutely and incredibly freeing in so many ways. Think of it this way. Imagine you have a test coming up, a big comprehensive final. This thing is, is huge. You're, you're studying for weeks for it. Uh, you're doing late nights, doing the study groups, the whole thing. And then uh, the morning of the test comes, you wake up early, you get some last minute studying in and you make your way to the class. And you're sitting there and you're waiting for the teacher to hand this test out. And you're anxious and you're nervous because you're like, have I studied the right things? Have I done the right things? And then right before the teacher gives you the test, they come up to you and they say, hey, you know what? I actually checked your grade. And regardless of how you do on this test, you're gonna get an A. Think about that. All the pressure would be off. All the pressure to perform on that day would be off. You'd take that test like it was an online BuzzFeed quiz. You would have no worries in the world. It would be the easiest test you ever took. Or if you're a Creighton student, imagine what it would be like for every test if you had gone to UNO. I want to gauge, I'm not sure if I want to use that at 11, so, okay, all right, feel a little heat coming from over here. I don't know why. Oh, boy. And City Light, here's how I've seen this play out in my life. I grew up in a religious tradition in a church uh, where I was told that I needed to earn God's approval through, through some rituals and through my behavior. And so my life was kind of up and down like this and as far as like how I felt with God. I would have a good day and I'd feel great. I, I must be close to God. I would have 45 bad days in a row and then I would think, oh man, I might be getting away from God here a little bit. I would throw a dollar in the offering plate and I'd feel, oh man, I'm doing pretty well. Do you see, I kind of went through this and what, what it didn't take me too long to realize that getting to God was going to be a mountain that I was never going to climb. And so I gave up. I gave up not because I didn't want God. That wasn't it. I gave up because I had no hope that I would ever get to him. But thank God that somebody showed me the grace of Jesus Christ that you cannot earn, but is given as a gift. That this is not about what I can do, not about my moral behavior, but simply about the gift of grace that Jesus offers us. And so City Light, I wonder, where are you at this morning? What's your life been like? Have you been there in the past? Are you there right now? Are you destroying yourself, running hard after something that God really never told you to do in the first place? The temptation for all of us is to drift from resting in the grace of God and what Jesus has done for us and start to slide back into a performance-oriented relationship with God where we keep trying to do things for him, where it's all about how I am living and how I am doing and has very little to do with what Jesus has done for me. But church, God is not dependent on you. You don't make the first move, and your relationship with him is, not based on his, is, is based on his grace and not whether or not you have done enough. 
And so we're going to see later in the text what that means for us in response. But first, God is going to go even further. So the second thing we're going to see is this. God's reply, a kingdom with no end. God tells David he doesn't need him to build a temple, that that he is going to dwell with his people regardless of if David builds him this big, huge, new, beautiful temple or not. And that would have been good news just in and of itself. However, God continues speaking to David, and he lets him know of a plan that completely overshoots even the highest expectations that David ever could have had. God tells David not only will David not be building him a house, but that God would be building David a house. And not only that, but but this house would never end. This house would never perish. It would go on forever. God's going to pull back the curtain on what he is doing and establish a promise or a covenant with David that's going to reach into eternity. He is going to build off of everything that he has promised his people Israel in history and establish not just a people, but a kingdom ruled by a king that is gonna last into eternity. And so look with me at a, a few key parts of what God is promising here. First in verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then hop down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, throughout history, God has made these promises or, or these covenants with his people. With Abraham, God promised him that he would uh, develop a nation through Abraham's offspring and that their number would be more than the sand on the seashore. With Moses, God promised that, that he would be their God, that, that he would bring his people into the promised land, that he would dwell with them, and, and that they would be his people. And now with David, he's promising to establish a kingdom ruled by a king that's going to last forever. None of these promises cancels out any of the others, but they all actually build upon each other. Each new covenant comes with more good news for God's people. But also notice here that the hero of the story is God. Starting in verse 8, God tells David, I took you from the pasture and made you prince. I have been with you and I will make for you a great name. And then nine more times in this promise that Christine read, in this promise, God utters the phrase, I will. I will. I will. I will. God promises this eternal kingdom to David and then tells him that it's God himself that's going to make it happen. He doesn't tell David that he has to do anything, but that it's God himself that will provide this kingdom and that this kingdom will have no end. It will never end. David was expecting to walk into the gas station and buy a Diet Coke, and he left having won the lottery. This is huge. The throne that David was sitting on would never see its end. Now, if you know your Bibles well, this is starting to sound very familiar. 
before Jesus was born, an angel named Gabriel comes to Mary, the future mother of Jesus, and tells her this from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. And this is about Jesus. Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see the the language that is the same? Jesus is the fulfillment of what God is talking here, talking about here from an eternal perspective. Do you see this? Jesus, uh, his earthly lineage, uh, both Joseph and Mary um, are in the line of David. They are, they are uh, descendants of David. And so Jesus's earthly lineage is that of David, which is why you see him over and over in the New Testament called the son of David. However, he is also fully God. And so being fully God, he can take this throne and he can reign on it eternally. The fulfillment, the full fulfillment of what God is talking about here rests in Jesus Christ. When he told David that he would establish a king and establish a kingdom forever, he wasn't just talking about this earthly kingdom that Israel would see, but he was also talking about this eternal kingdom that Jesus Christ would come and usher in. So Jesus, being the ultimate son of David, is the eternal king. And this is good news because at the center of our faith is not good people trying to get to God with good intentions, but a generous and powerful God. A generous and powerful God that says, I have a king that will win the victory over your enemies for you. He will rescue you. He will fight for you. He will die for you. He loves you and he will be faithful to you forever. My king will reign forever. And see, like, here's what this means for me and for you right now as we sit here. It means that our ultimate hope for this life and for the life to come is not tied up in how we live, but how our king lived for us. Let me say that again. Our ultimate hope in this life and the one to come is not tied up in how we live, but how our king lived for us. It means our posture today is not one of fear and insecurity, wondering, man, have we done enough for God, but one of confidence because we know that God has provided a king that has done more than enough for us. Jesus came to this earth and he's our king. The enemies that he fought for us are Satan, sin, and death. He defeated them once and will return and defeat them once and for all. And City Light, now 3,000 years after this covenant uh, that, that God told David, we can look back and see clearly that God was authoring a story that was much bigger and a story that impacts our lives today. And so City Light, let me just say one of the reasons that we talk about Jesus so much here is because you cannot open this book. You cannot open a single book within this book and not see arrows pointing to Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. Our whole faith is about Jesus. And can I tell you one of the just the absolute greatest joys that I've had as, as a pastor over the last uh, few years here at City Light is seeing people 
go from, from spiritual slavery where they're thinking that my, my, my uh, relationship with God is about my moralism or it's about uh, doing enough in missions or it's about my parenting or it's about my sobriety or it's about whatever it might be. I've seen people go from that to understanding the freedom that is in Jesus Christ and being released from their bondage, from having to do, from having to earn, but having that full freedom knowing Jesus has already done and he has already earned everything for them. City Light, people have been released from their burdens. We have seen people baptized. We have seen people living a life of freedom, being released from having to do and just resting in what has already been done. Has God not done a work among us, church? Amen. Amen. And so City Light, we see this promise now take hold in David's heart. And when it does, it's going to change his posture from someone that was going to do something for God to someone who simply wants to worship God. And so my third observation from the text is this. David's posture, humble worship, and prayerful dependence on God. Look with me at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Then in the following verses, uh, he goes on to worship, saying things like, You are great, O Lord. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. Your name will be magnified Forever, David goes from God, let me do something for you to God, who am I that you would do such a thing from me? He goes from wondering what he can do to make God great to wondering who he was that God would make him so great. And here's what I know. When you experience the goodness of God, the grace of God, the generosity of God, like David, you get compelled into a life of worship. When we recognize that the work of Jesus on the cross has done all the work that needs to be done, we respond in gratitude and in worship. The Christian life then becomes worship to God and not performance. Hear that again. The Christian life becomes worship to God and not a performance for him. Performers carry with them anxiety because they wonder if they will ever be enough. Worshippers have peace because they know they don't have to be enough. Performers look around at those around them and, and they compete to see if they're doing just a little bit better. Performers or worshipers look around them thankful for all the different giftings and abilities that God has given those around them. Worshippers or performers uh, give of their time, talents, and resources out of a sense of duty and obligation. Worshippers give of their time, talents, and resources out of a sense of joy and thankfulness. Performers think they are to be examples of God to the world. Worshipers realize that they are trophies of God's love and grace to the world that he has won. Not only does David worship, but he's also going to show prayerful dependence on God. So let's hop back in and look with me at verses 25 and 29. This is David. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. 
And then verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Notice that, that David prays that God would do the things that, that he just told David he was going to do. And this is not new. All over the pages of the Bible, we see the people of God praying to God that he would do the things that he already told them he would do. And what we see through this is a prayerful dependence on God to act, even in the things that he has promised he will bring about. David knows that he can trust God's word and at the same time that he is completely dependent on God as well. And what that does is it drives him to prayer. In many ways, prayer is just an acknowledgement that we are fully dependent on God. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to pray. Pray, pray about everything. Pray about that sickness running through your family. Pray about your son or your daughter or your neighbor uh, who doesn't know Jesus. Uh, pray about, pray for our church, pray for our city, pray for our nation, pray for the oppressed, pray for the prideful, pray for that job that you want to get. Pray for everything. But I want to draw your attention and as a model of what is David is doing here and a pattern we see in the, in, of, of God's people in the Bible, I want to encourage you to pray for the things that God has promised he would do or that he will bring about. And the one thing about the, when you pray for the promises that God said he would do or that he would bring about, you can be 100% sure that those prayers are going to come true, that they are going to happen in God's timing. And so there are literally thousands of promises that God makes in the Bible. But I wanted to just give a few examples of promises that you can pray, that you can be sure that God will see through. They should be up on the screen. God will comfort us in our trials. God will give us new life in Christ. God will finish the work he started in us. God will guard our hearts with peace. God will provide for all of our needs. Jesus will seek and save the lost. Jesus will build and protect his church. And Jesus will return and make all things new. Those are just a sample of the promises that God has for his people. And you can take those to the bank because they are going to happen because they came from the mouth of God. So City Light, let me close with this. I wonder what would happen if we stopped beating ourselves up for not being good enough and instead started to believe more deeply that God's promised king is enough for really broken people like you and me. I wonder how resting in Jesus's work for us can create a new affection for God and City Light, I, I wonder what it would look like not just to, enjoy, just to enjoy God deeply and believe right theology, but also be completely dependent on him for everything. What if instead of complaining or grumbling, we said, God, you've been good and you have brought me this far. What if the watching world saw in the church free, worshipful, grateful, and joyful people, not tired, religiously burnt out, and frustrated people? 
City Light, I believe that we must hold fast to King Jesus. Let's not drift away from him. Let's hold on to the truth that he has fought our battles. He has won our victories and done all that is required. And let us worship and be dependent on Jesus. So the watching world sees this Jesus as a worthy and good king. Let's pray. Well, Lord, the nature of your promises are that they're more than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, David thought one thing and you delivered something so much bigger. He could have never imagined that. And Lord, that is true for us today. You have promised us to be with you for eternity, but we have no idea the, the, just the amazing things that you have in store for us. And so, oh Lord, would we look to you? Would we look to your promises? And would we respond in humble worship and prayerful dependence? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.